Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, Children's Sermons with Humor, by the hilarious Ms. Polly. And the author is Mary Phillips, and Mary joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Mary. Hi, Steve. Good morning. Well, great to have you with us. Let me read just a little about this book in general. You say this, This book shows children that it can be fun to learn about God. They can engage in laughter and at the same time be learning scripture and biblical principles. Well, Mary, first of all, let's find out about you, a little bit about your background and why you decided to publish your book. Okay. Well, I am a retired registered nurse. And I have been involved in children's ministry for over 40 years, um, teaching Sunday school and presenting children's sermons and working in vacation Bible school and uh, junior church, all of those things. And um, it was about about five years ago when I uh, felt like the Lord gave me this idea of creating the humorous Miss Polly. And uh, she is um, an uneducated hillbilly lady. And um, I felt like uh, the Lord just wanted me to show the children that it could be fun to learn about God. And I would uh, come up with these ideas of uh, biblical principles that I wanted to uh, put in the messages. But at the same time, I would insert some hillbilly humor. And then at the end of uh, each message, I would have uh, a prayer. And there would always be a scripture included as well. But um, when I started doing these, um, I actually dressed up like this character, Miss Polly. And uh, the first time that I did this in church, uh, the congregation didn't even recognize who I was. <laughs> and in the introduction of the book, I describe how I uh, dressed up as Miss Polly and just give them some ideas. But I wore a wig and a crazy hat. And probably one of the most uh, distinguishable things about Miss Polly is her hillbilly teeth. (laughs) (laughs) I wear these hillbilly teeth, and that really catches the children's attention, as well as the adults. But um, the adults and the children love these stories, and uh, I would try to do one at least once a month, and everybody would ask, you know, when are you going to do Miss Polly again? (laughs) And um, when the adults realized that I was writing these stories on my own, they suggested that I publish these in a book. And uh, now that I'm retired, I decided to do just that. So um, that's why I have written this book. And we all know kids really learn when they're having fun. Yes. Yes, you really hold their attention. And sometimes um, people can find that as a challenge, you know, to hold children's attention when you're trying to tell them a Bible story or teach them anything about the Bible, but you have no difficulty holding your attention as Miss Polly. Well, do we have 20 sermons, and how did you come up, how did you come up with the theme of, of these sermons? Uh, did you have a, a, a lot more to choose from? Well, I just tried to uh, think of messages that children need to learn, uh, biblical principles, you know, like lying, stealing, and um, different things that uh, the golden rule that uh, children would need to uh, apply to their lives. And so I just tried to think of funny things that Miss Polly would do. And um, most of the sermons um, are about Miss Polly's childhood uh, when she was in school. And then uh, they advance up to when she even gets married and has children of her own. So it's just um, different um, experiences that we would have in our everyday lives and how children can learn how to, um, how to handle that in a biblical manner. 
Well, why don't you share one right now? Uh, share some of th- these uh, principles in this sermon that you're choosing for us. Okay. Um, well, the first one I thought would be good, you know, to give kind of an introduction of what Miss Polly was actually like. And um, so, like I say, the children always notice those hillbilly teeth. So uh always mention those, and I uh, tell the children that I try to... Uh, look my best for them today, and I even brushed my teeth this morning, all three of them, and I tell them I've always had such pretty teeth, so I try (laughs) to take good care of them, so uh, I make sure that I brush my teeth every week, (laughs) and tell them that they should do the same, and then uh, I go on to tell them um, that I love going to school, and uh, that I went all the way through second grade four times, (laughs) and uh, then I go on to tell the children that uh, my family and I all went to church and um, that the preacher told me that the most important thing that I should remember was that Jesus loved me. And so then I go on to um, to mention the scripture, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And uh, Miss Polly tells them how she believed and she accepted Jesus as her Savior. And then she goes on to tell how she was baptized in a crick. <laughs> and she explains what a crick is. <laughs> it's like a baby river. But um, then she goes on. Um, some of the other sermons are like sitting still in church. The children love that one because uh, they love to hear how Miss Polly got in trouble for not sitting still in church. But um, then it goes on... Um, She mentioned some of her friends that she had in school. Um, One of the lessons is on witnessing. And this is where Miss Polly uh, tells her one of her friends named Jenny uh, about Jesus and invites her to church. And so Jenny starts coming to church with Polly, and she goes forward and accepts Jesus as her Savior. And later she is baptized in a crick, same way that Miss Polly was. And then later... Jenny's friends or, and her mom and dad also start coming to church. And so the, the preacher tells Polly later, um, says, uh, you see how witnessing works? You witness to Jenny, and now she and her whole family are in church. The love of Jesus is contagious. And Miss Polly says, do you mean like the measles? <laughs> and the preacher says, well, sort of, Polly. You just keep on witnessing. But... Um, there's so many stories about her childhood in second grade. And then it goes up to um, the one about Jesus' bride. Uh, this is where Miss Polly is now grown, and she's still going to church with her family. And this new feller, as she calls him, <laughs> starts coming to church and starts walking her home from church on Sunday nights. And... So one night he asked her, uh, he said, do you think it would be okay if I kissed you goodnight? And Miss Polly says, well, I think that would be fine. Well, he smacked her a big kiss right on the mouth. She says, I'll never forget it. There was blood everywhere because he had cut his lip wide open on her teeth. (laughs) (laughs) And his lip must have bled for an hour after that. Well, Ever since then, he just kissed her on the cheek. <laughs> well, anyway, they ended up getting married, and it tells about her wedding. And then uh, she goes on to tell about um, Jesus' wedding. You know, in Revelation chapter 19, it talks about Jesus' wedding. And if we have Jesus in our hearts, if we are part of God's church, we are going to be Jesus' bride. And in Revelation 19.9, it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Of course, the Lamb is Jesus. And if we are part of God's church, we are going to be at that wedding supper with Jesus. So those are just a few of the sermons that I've mentioned. Um, And you have a prayer at the end of each of these sermons? Yes. Why don't you share a couple of those? Okay. Well, let's see. I'll go back to the one... uh, Okay, about Jesus' bride. Uh, It says, Dear Lord, thank you for all of your promises in the Bible and help us to always show you our love by obeying you. And Lord, we thank you 
and we are looking forward to that wedding supper. In Jesus' name, amen. So, yes, there's a small prayer at the end of each uh, lesson. So um, I think that's why the moms have loved this book so much, because um, they are using it for bedtime stories. And uh, the children, they love it because they love the humor, and they ask their moms to read those stories over and over again. So that's a real blessing because um, they are learning scripture and they're learning biblical principles all at the same time, but they're also having fun. Yeah, some of the other titles, The Real Meaning of Christmas, Tithing, Clean Language, uh, Honor Your Father and Mother, Boasting Wisdom, Busybodies, Hypocrites, uh, the list is obviously uh, very, very comprehensive. Uh, These 20 sermons cover a lot of different truth that you're trying to teach these children. Right. But you know, the book isn't only for children. Um, Like I say, the adults love it as well. Of course, it is perfect for any type of children's ministry, Um, you know, like Sunday school, junior church, vacation Bible school, or church camps. But uh, puppet ministry um, is also um, something that you could use this book for. I had a lady purchase it just recently, and she was going to use it um, for puppet ministry in her church. And um, like I say, it's also good for adults. Um, I've done a lot of um, Miss Polly presentations, even at nursing homes and women's faith conferences. Um, So it can be used for adults as well, but like I say, the moms really love this book um, to tell their children bedtime stories. Well, why don't you tell us about a couple more? A couple more stories? All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, you mentioned the one about um, Christmas. Uh, let's see. The Real Meaning of Christmas. This, again, is um, Polly um, with her little friend, Jenny, and um they are going to be in a Christmas play at church, and I won't go through the whole story because it's maybe a little lengthy, but um, anyway, uh, Jenny was crying and sad because she was telling Polly that her mom wasn't going to be able to come and watch her in the Christmas program, and the reason for that was because Jenny's mom didn't have any shoes to wear, so um, Polly she says um, she has. She asked what size shoe that um, Jenny's mother wore, and her mother wore size seven. Well, Polly used to have really big feet when she was little, <laughs> so she wore size seven as well. So anyway, she ends up giving Jenny a pair of shoes for her mom to wear to the Christmas program. And that night um, when Jenny was up there, in the program, and she sang, and Polly was in the program, too, because she played um, the part of a reindeer, but um, Polly looked back, and she saw Jenny's mother, and she saw that she was wearing the shoes that she had given her, and she said she, she had a real warm feeling right there in her heart, and then after the program, they went to um, a nursing home, and they sang to uh, the people there, sang Christmas carols. And she said some of the people there um, had tears in her eyes and really enjoyed their singing. And she said she got that real warm feeling right in her heart again. So when she went to church the next Sunday, the preacher asked her what she liked best about Christmas. And she said what she liked best about Christmas is making other people happy. And for that scripture, for that lesson... um, I used uh, Matthew twenty-five forty, where Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So she was just showing that when we help other people in need, it's like we are giving to Jesus. So that's, that's another one of the stories. And um, like I say, the children are learning um, the importance of giving and um about Christmas, and at the same time, they enjoyed listening to it because there were um, there were some um, mentions of humor throughout the story. Um, uh, one of the things that um, 
Miss Polly did. She tells about um, when she went to the dentist for the first time, and she said the uh, the doctor asked her to open her mouth so he could check her teeth, and she said, well, what do you need me to open my mouth for, doctor? They're all three sticking out right here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mary, we, we really appreciate you sharing your book, Children's Sermons with Humor, and it looks like just the type of book that will help children stay focused on these great principles, these 20 sermons in your book, uh, and of course, uh, to get to know, as you say, the, the hilarious Ms. Polly. So, Mary, tell us how to get your book. Well, it is available in paperback and ebook. Uh, you can purchase it through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, of course, through Ex Libris, and it's available through any of the Christian bookstores. And you have a website. Yes, I do. My website is childrenssermonswithhumor.com. Well, thank you, Mary, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you ever wondered why America is facing such a health care crisis? Then join us for Dr. Peter DeVette Live every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. He'll answer your health care and medical questions and share with you his knowledge and opinions on topics ranging from holistic health care to spirituality and wellness. You'll find out about the roots of your health care challenges versus symptom management. The holistic approach, how the spirit, mind, and body connection is critical in both the development of illness and the solution to illness. How emotions are directly related to physical illness and how to read your body like a book. Dr. DeVette will also go through your personal questions and how you can navigate through the illness maze. Supplements, medications, therapies, treatment options, surgeries, all kinds of things related to your health. Dr. Peter DeVent Live, every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirit Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Don't Look Back. And the author is Phil Servery, and Phil joins us now on Ex Libris on air. Hello, Phil. Hello, how are you today? Great to have you with us, and a, a very insightful book. You say this, because this is about children who are put up for adoption and have to go to the orphanage uh, back in the, I guess, the 50s, uh, where this is focused on, but I don't know how much that goes on today. I guess there still are orphanages. Uh, we'll talk about uh, your view of all that and your concerns. Uh, you say this, Curtis, which is the main character, Curtis is one of six children whose father recently passed away and whose mother could no longer take care of them. His mother makes a heartbreaking decision to put the four youngest children up for adoption, meaning Curtis is one of them. And how old is Curtis? Curtis is about three and a half years old. Three and a half, a little guy. Uh, almost four, a little guy, yeah. Yeah, a little guy. I've got grandkids that old now, and that, that's a, I can't even imagine uh, what a heartbreaking decision his mom had to make. And But... She made it for whatever reasons, uh, couldn't take care of the, the big family. But 
let's get first of all before we get into the details of your great book let's find out about you phil tell us about a little bit about yourself and why you wrote the book well we'll start with a little bit about me um i've been in education for a long time and i've retired since um, i was a fifth grade teacher and uh, for 18 years an administrator the rest of the time and uh, so it's been it locks in very well with with what i do and uh it's uh, important to know you know that you have the kind of background that helps you write something like this because it's kind of a it's an emotional piece as well so but uh in any case um as far as why i wrote the book or how i got started on it that's an interesting point because i met with my father about a year ago my adopted father and we sat down and we talked and he's going into a home and so he had some things he wanted to give me. So, but anyway, I um, we were on we my wife Penny and I were on our way home, and I got this rush of emotions about the day he and my mother adopted me, and it was a topic of discussion for the most part all the way home, and uh, I I've you know I've really had the urge at that point to put it to print or put it down on paper, and with Penny's help, I began to write. Don't look back. Well, and that's what makes this book so unique because of your experiences. That is true. Um, it was different. It, it's been kind of a very difficult thing to write about at times because because of the emotional parts of it. I'll, I'll tell you a short little story where I had a coffee house at a church and I was I had completed the rough draft of it, if you will, and shared that with that coffee house group, which was just about 30 people, adults and kids mixed together. The reaction was just unbelievable. I, I had no intent of making people upset, but for some reason, they got into it emotionally, and uh, one person really got into it emotionally. And, and, and it kind of strikes a nerve with people, and it's why I thought it was important to put it, put it down on paper and try to write it and share it with, with, with other kids who might learn from it. What age group is uh, best for your book? The age group for this book is seven nine-year-olds, but I, uh, you know, since I'm, this is my comfort zone as a fifth-grade teacher, that's why I, I developed it that way. But I've also found that it, it's it's good for parents to share with their child. It, because it is an emotional book, it's nice for them to share that with them. If they can read to their child or whatever they can do, have an opportunity to sit down and look at the book together, it really, and the parents will enjoy the book as well because I've had people tell me that. So, and of course, with a child's book, uh, pictures, illustrations are very critical, and these are just tremendous. Yes, uh, the um, art person, uh, Mr. Pellerin, did a very nice job. I have to give credit to my wife Penny because she was the one who came up with the ideas for the artist. To, to put together in a picture or an image, if you will. And uh, she deserves a lot of credit as well. I'd like to thank her for that. Well, when a young boy, so young like Curtis, uh, when, when, when you find out as a young boy or girl that your mother is putting you up for adoption, uh, the emotions must be all over the place. Yes, the most... The most the most difficult one was fear. <laughs> when when you go through this, the fear of not knowing where you're going to end up, what's going to happen to you, who you're going to meet, whether you're going to have enough to eat, whether or not you're going to make friends, where you're going to sleep, is it going to be dark? I mean, there's all kinds of things that go through your head. And, and it's tough. It's tough. And it's tough on children who go through this, especially the older they are. They, it is a very difficult emotional time for a child to have to go through. And I give a lot of credit to all those parents out there who have adopted children because it's tough for them to adjust to this as well. But as a kid in an orphanage, you know, one other thing you don't get is, is love. You don't get the touch and feely, huggy things that mom and dad could give you. And that means a lot to kids and for obvious reasons. 
So they need that unconditional love. That's one of the messages in your book, how critical that is. Yes, it is. Unconditional love is, that's a term I even use in the book. And I use that because it really dictates to, to people um, that it's love, no matter what they bring to the table, what a child attributes are, whatever. It's what they bring to the table, and you accept the child, whether they're short, they speak very little, they're fearful, whatever. Whatever little innuendos that, they, that may not make them perfect, you have to love them in spite of all those things. And it had, <clears throat> and of course with Curtis, he had a lot of strikes against him anyway, but finally two special people did come along and adopt him. It takes time. And as a kid, it seems like forever because time moves very slowly when you get my age. <laughs> it moves a lot faster. But uh, in any case, that, that's, that's the importance of unconditional love. It's something that you just, you can't get anywhere except with mom and dad. Or mom or dad, however it goes. You describe Curtis, shy little boy. Of course, uh, a very painful separation from his family, and he spends time in various orphanages. So is, is this kind of follow him through some different stages of his life? Uh, yes, to some degree, but it, it, finally, it flows from one segment of his time to another, from one orphanage to another, and it's very uneventful, and, and there isn't much change in, in from one place to the next, really other than the fear of what's going to be next. That is what children have to adjust to. And it's true today with foster families and everything else like that. You have children who are who move from one foster home to the next, and, and these transitions can be difficult. Or, but in an orphanage, for the most part, to, to me, it was just like the same thing again, except to, when I got to the last one. And then things began to change a little bit. Now, Curtis... He has a, a really tough experience at Christmas time. Tell tell us about that. Yes, he arrives in the last orphanage two days before Christmas, and what occurs? He gets in. They they get in the room, and he you know he's, he's all situated in there with what little bit of he has, and then they have a meeting. I don't know. It's not a meeting, but they have a, a group, if you will, that gets together on Christmas morning. And on Christmas morning, they're read a Christmas story. They're all sitting there in front of everyone, like pretzel style, like they do today in classes and stuff. And so they're given an opportunity to go under the tree, pick up a pick up a uh, gift, if you will, and then walk back down. And it's supposed to have been done in an orderly fashion. Well, <laughs> if you can imagine, at Christmas time, it's difficult to do anything in an organized fashion with 12 13 kids. But what happened was, because I was so shy, and because Curtis was so little, he didn't push his way through or anything like that. He kind of, he kind of hid like in a corner and just waited. And then everybody went and got their gifts, and there's paper and boxes being thrown around everywhere. And he goes and looks for a gift, and there's no gift there for him. And what had happened was, I realized now that they did not take into consideration, they being the staff of the orphanage, didn't take into consideration there was an extra kid at that time and forgot to put an extra gift in the in the room. But nobody found out because Curtis picked a nice red and gold well, red box with a gold ribbon, played with that and some other boxes and kept the red box. And to this day, I don't know why I did that, but I did it. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> hmm. um, but it was neat. It was neat. And I was satisfied with that. You know, and sometimes, and that's another message to try to get across to kids, is sometimes you got to be satisfied with what you have and be thankful for what you have because it could really be a whole lot worse. Now, you see your book, A Real Aid to Teachers in Elementary Schools uh, to uh, help them uh, with this issue. Now, how would this help a teacher? Well, one quality you find in a good teacher in an elementary school is their ability to build relationships with each other and with students. 
and better understand what issues each child brings to the classroom because every child is different. And, and it's good to have a little bit of background about children so when you're working with them, you, you can understand where they're coming from. But after reading Don't Look Back, the teacher could draw out a child's feelings and begin to know, know them a little better and a simple chart. And teachers do this all the time to compare and contrast. A simple chart comparing and contrasting their life with Curtis's should reveal a lot about each student. And it really, it really does. And it's good to have that information because later on in the year something might happen and you'll have a feel for what their reaction is going to be. And, and, and the same is true with uh, what their abilities are. And so you, you get a better feel for the child. And that's, that's what makes a good teacher, I think, is knowing, knowing the children. You have to know the children. You have to know the curriculum and material as well. Don't get me wrong. But the, the kids come first. And I had a person teach me that a long time ago. Kids come first. And uh, that was one of my first principles. And she made it really, really emphatic. And it's one of those things I've always taken with me. Why did you include Curtis's actual certificate of adoption in the book? Okay, the certificate of adoption, I put that in there for a couple of reasons. Um, the first was to actually see what a certificate of adoption looks like. And uh, I placed it there so the kids could actually see what a legal document looks like. Because a lot of kids don't know. And, and especially back in 1959, because they're a little different looking. Then they could also look at that information and discuss what's in there. What are the important points that are, that are, that are made in that? What, what, what kinds of things can you learn from looking at it? One of the big things is the, the seal. Why is that seal there, the official seal? Uh, and then finally, one of the last things, which I found interesting too, was the fact that the type is in reverse to today. It would be interesting to see what the kids thought were on that, to ask them, well, what do you think of this type? have white letters and black background. Anyhow. Um, so that's why I put that in there. It's, it's really another thought-provoking item for kids to analyze, check out, and see what, what they can discover from it. We've been listening to Phil Servery. He is the author of his book, Don't Look Back. Phil, tell us how to get your book. Well, I know you can get it on Exlibris, and I believe Amazon um, as well. Barnes and Noble, the regular standard ones online that you you can uh, you can go there and pick them up as well. Uh, I do know it's going to be released also as an ebook eventually, uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. So that uh, there and they are the main ways to go about finding a book, if you will, online would be easier probably, but um, it'll be available at bookstores as well eventually. Phil, thank you for being with us on Ex Libris on air. Thank you, too. It's been very, very uh, rewarding for me to have this opportunity and all the folks involved. And uh, thank you again. Thanks. Good morning. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt. And learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Craig Deswald is the creator of the Rockstar System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from their competition. 
Each high energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Boot Camps, check out the website, Craig CraigDoeswalt.com, so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field, so more people come to you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Doeswalt, Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Druggynet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Afghanistan, The Perfect Failure, a war doomed by the coalition strategies, policies, and political correctness. And the author is John L. Cook, and John joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, John. Hey, Steve. How you doing? Well, great to have you with us. I should uh, respectfully call you Colonel Cook, and you'll tell us why in a moment. <laughs> but uh, you have... John will, John will do just that. Well, exactly. Well, I appreciate that. But uh, you've been involved in the military, been in Afghanistan, and we'll learn about those details in a moment. But let me read what you've written about this book, Afghanistan, The Perfect Failure. You say this. Afghanistan has cost America far too many lives and the killing of Americans must stop. There is nothing worth this kind of sacrifice in the hopes that we have of achieving. You also say this work takes the reader from the very beginning of our involvement there, the defeat of the Taliban in late 2001 up to the present day. It explains why all the major objectives have failed and why it is now impossible to salvage anything that justifies to lo- justifies the loss on so many American lives. Well, I think that is uh, a very confusing issue to most Americans. I think we all have this gut feeling, John, that we shouldn't be there. Uh, we do, I think, and one of the reasons I went was I'd spent over two years in Vietnam as an advisor, and so I wanted to see what the difference was, because both of these are third, third world countries fighting an insurgency. So I had a very different feel about uh, Vietnam, because I wrote one of the first books about the Phoenix program there, and I had a very positive experience and a very positive outlook, because Vietnam, we clearly identified the enemy and we went there, and we were successful. Of course, uh, the invasion in uh, 1975, when uh, Gerald Ford became president, we simply abdicated and kind of left them to their own mercy. Afghanistan was supposed to be sort of the same kind of thing, where a proud people were fighting for their independence. But after four and a half years there, where I was a senior advisor to the Ministry of the Interior, it became obvious that there was no way we could achieve the goals we wanted to in Afghanistan because, first of all, the strategy was all wrong. Uh, we underestimated the um, effect and the uh, influence of Islam. Uh, we refused to uh, hold President Karzai accountable for um, any of the failures of his own government, and we simply lost our way. So. What the book does is it, it, it covers all of these um, topics, the treatment of women, the corruption, the drugs, uh, the fact that the Afghan security forces uh, refuse to fight. All of them come to one conclusion that, um, that we're never going to achieve what we want to and we need to, we need to leave and we need to leave now. And we don't seem to learn from history. Russia tried this, and after 10 years, they got out. They were there for 10 years, from 79 to 89, and they lost 15,000 killed, 50,000 wounded. Yes, we should have looked at uh, what the uh, Russian experience was there before we decided to get involved in this nation-building exercise, which was actually doomed from the very beginning. I think one of the most alarming uh, uh, revelations that you give to us is concerning the 
opium trade out of Afghanistan, the the poppy uh, production, uh, it's... It's still flourishing. It is the the number one, isn't it? The number one industry in Afghanistan. Afghanistan it produces ninety seven percent of the world's uh, opium, and um, it is a major part of their economy. The irony is that under Afghan law, production, distribution, uh, transporting uh, narcotics is is a very very serious offense. And one of the things that this administration has done, which is unforgivable, is they've said, we're not going to try to eradicate the poppies. We're going to, our policy will be to interdict them. Now, let me just take a minute and explain uh, how our policy is there now. You've got half a million acres of poppies growing in Helmand and Kandahar province. Now, what Karzai has said is, you know, the poppy farmers uh, are very poor people, and they need to make a living. So our policy now is let the poppy uh, farmers grow the opium, sell it to the uh, drug dealers, and then when the drug dealers try to make it to the border, we're going to intercept them. And therefore, everybody wins. We uh, keep the drugs from leaving the country, and the poppy farmers get, um, get their money. Now, the only way this would make sense is some Hollywood screenwriter who's high on heroin coming up with this policy, but this is actually the U.S. government's current policy. We have quit. We have abandoned any effort to eradicate the drug. So right away, when you have this situation where we're supposed to be building up respect for the rule of law over there, we are turning a very blind eye to a interlocking criminal enterprise. And it's even worse than that because the Taliban get a big cut out of the drug trade. It's estimated that some $300 million a year from the drug trade goes to the Taliban. So without the drug money going to the Taliban, they would not be able to continue um, operations and buying equipment and weapons and things like that. So. I spend a whole chapter talking about that, as, as bizarre as it is. Now, of course, I realize Americans are saying, well, of course, you're, out, you're over there trying to destroy the drug trade, right? No, we're not. We, we quit that. We, we gave up on that three years ago when uh, we got uh, Richard Holbrook as the new uh, Undersecretary of State who was responsible for that part of the country. That's, that's just one of the uh, things where it's a perfect failure because – We've abdicated on so many of those things. And one of the reasons we went there was the mistreatment of women. Has that changed at all? The, third, uh, the big two reasons that we went to Afghanistan, and they were both good reasons, by the way, was to topple the Taliban regime and drive out al-Qaeda. Well, we did that uh, in short order in about three or four months. By early uh, 2002, the Taliban were no longer in power. Uh, Al-Qaeda was on the run. And President Bush said that uh, with the toppling of the Taliban, the women in Afghanistan would now have their rights restored. And, and all of that was good. Because that was one of the biggest complaints coming out of Afghanistan uh, prior to 9-11 was how the Taliban treat the women. The reality is the women are not much better off today than they were then. Even though the Constitution, which is a well-written Constitution, and it says that uh, there's good equality and there will be no distinction made between uh, male and females and all of that, it's a beautiful Constitution. However, Article 3 is the poison pill in there. Article 3 is probably the shortest article in the whole Constitution, and it says basically this. Nothing in this Constitution will contradict the holy laws of Islam. Now, what that really means is anytime they want to pull out Sharia law to trump the um, secular law, that's what happens. So, so it doesn't really matter what you write as a constitution. You still have Sharia law. You have, you exactly. have the, that, 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 as you say, that's number one priority in, in the Islam faith. 
and, and the other thing about the law is that the corruption is so um, widespread that um, there's really not much. If, if you're charged with a major crime in Afghanistan and you uh, are a wealthy man, um, you just bribe the judge, you know. And people talk about, well, you know, we we want to uh, stop the corruption, and we are tired of everybody talking about how corrupt it is. Well, the reality is. There's a lot of people in jail in Afghanistan, but no wealthy people are in jail. Because if you're wealthy, you don't go to jail. You simply buy a judge. Well, and then we have the forces, the so-called friendly forces, turning on our own American soldiers, right? I mean, we've had, just lately in the news, we've heard about yeah. uh, the attacks on American soldiers by the Afghan Inside military. Inside yeah. attacks. And that's been going on for a while, and it's going to get much worse, and there's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, um, if you look at the Afghan National Security Forces, and this is one of the things that um, the, the average American is going to find shocking, is there is no draft in Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan is supposed to be a country struggling for its very survival, but the government and Karzai have not seen the necessity of drafting their own citizens to save the country. Now, what that means is the best and the brightest in Afghanistan, the ones who are literate and educated, have no fear of ever being um, conscripted into the defense of the country. As a result of that, recruiters are forced to go out and sign up anybody with the pulse to come into the national police and the Afghan army. The attrition rate in some of these units is as high as 70%. There's no um, penalty for you if you just walk off. So you'll go out and you'll sign up a policeman. He'll draw a couple of paychecks. He'll walk off. And there's no retribution for that because there's, there's no draft. There's no retribution. So what happens is you've got this continuous effort of trying to fill the ranks with illiteracy running 70%, 75%. Drug uh, use, probably 15 to 20 percent don't make it because of that. The point I'm making is this is a perfect breeding ground for the Taliban to put their people into those forces. So you say, okay, they're looking for anybody. The Taliban puts up some of their guys and say, you allow yourself to be recruited. Uh, you will be trained. You will be equipped. You'll be given a uniform. And when we need you, we will have you turn on the coalition and the Afghan security forces. So when you understand the underpinnings of the situation, it's not surprising that you're going to have these insider attacks or these so-called uh, uh, green on blue attacks, and they're, and they're going to continue. And what it does is it destroys what little unit cohesion there is. And when you have uh, these kind of attacks on the coalition, remember the irony is, Right now, we're trying to get them to stand up so we can stand down. Well, it's driven such a wedge between the coalition trainers and the Afghan forces that uh, you're constantly watching your back instead of trying to train the Afghans. And then there's not much of any nationalistic feeling anyway in the country. The, really, the country is just made up of tribes, right? Exactly right. And that's one of the biggest problems is that uh, let's take that for just a second. The largest tribe is the Pashtuns. They make up probably 42, 43% of the population. And they inhabit the southern and eastern uh, region of Afghanistan, right where the fighting is the fiercest. Um, about 90 to 95% of the Taliban belong to the Pashtun tribe. Hamad Karzai, the president of Afghanistan, is a Pashtun. Most of his government is Pashtun. So you could say that the war in Afghanistan, for all practical purposes, is the Pashtun War. This is just one great big tribe fighting among itself. And um, when you understand that you have so many Pashtuns in the government and so many Pashtuns in the Taliban, you kind of get the feeling that this is not going to go well. Because tribal uh, loyalty will pretty much trump 
national, a sense of nationalism every time. Well, and just uh, about a minute left, John. Uh, one of the reasons this book is so important and so effective is because of of your involvement there. You spent four and a half years in Afghanistan. Uh, you mentioned that before, uh, but that really you come at this from an inside point of view. Uh, that's true, and I'm spent a lot of time. I understand counterinsurgency, counterterror operations. Uh, I spent 20 years as an intelligence um, officer for human human intelligence, so I know the internal workings of um, what happens uh, when one country or one force tries to take over another country. So I went there to see, and and that's what I saw. And just one final point before we go is that the cost of this war is what's the most troubling thing to me. And I'm not talking about the dollar cost because. Dollars are fungible. We've been pumping billions down third world rat holes forever, and we'll keep doing that. But we've lost over 2,000 Americans there for really no defensible reason. And every time we lose one more, that's just one more immoral act that we've allowed to happen. And I'm far from what you would call a pacifist, but the main thrust I want to make is that we got to get out now. There's nothing that's going to be achieved. Because there's one thing we can count on. The longer we stay, the more American soldiers will be killed. Absolutely. There are kids in high school right now who will die in Afghanistan next summer. And that, you know, should be a sobering thought for anyone who's seriously concerned about what's going on there. We've been listening to John L. Cook. He is the author of his book, Afghanistan, The Perfect Failure, a war doomed by the coalition's strategies, policies, and political correctness. John, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on all uh, web uh, uh, booksellers on the web, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's also available in the ebook version, which I find is the way I think a lot of the publishing world is going now. So simply go on to Amazon or whatever your favorite bookseller is and type in Afghanistan, the perfect failure, and it comes up. Thank you, John, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thanks, Steve. Good talking to you, and I hope to do this again. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.